0: Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 5 John of Damascus. Well, sorry it has been three weeks since my last episode. I think in the future I'm going to try for one episode every two weeks. That seems sustainable right now, but every once in a while I should be able to drop a special episode or something like that, Um, faster than that, but we'll have to see how it goes. And if you would like me to focus on some special topic in this time period, or maybe some person in this time period, please email me, let me know, send me a message on my website, or you can email me at claretclawson at at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear your ideas or thoughts or questions about previous episodes. So at the moment, we are still looking at the early Middle Ages, and in the last four episodes, we have spent our time looking at Western Europe. We started with Gregory the Great in Italy, and then Augustine and Bede in England, Boniface and Leoba in Germany, and Alcuin, who helped with Charlemagne's empire. But all of these were in Western Europe, and they spent most of their lives in Western Europe. But Western Europe is not the only place that Christians were active in this period And not by a long shot. There's plenty of activity going on in Eastern Europe, Africa, and even the Middle East. And remember, our friend Theodore of Tarsus came all the way from modern-day Turkey. So today we're going to look at another Christian man from not too far down the road from Theodore. And that man is John of Damascus. Now, while perhaps you've never heard of John of Damascus, he's a pretty big deal. And there's a lot to say about John. First off, he was a great writer. He wrote on just about any topic, including theology, law, and philosophy. Second, he was a great hymn writer. Some of the hymns he wrote are still used in churches today. And third, he was a great preacher, and he earned the nickname Golden Flowing for his eloquent words. Because of this, he's one of the last people who is recognized and honored by both the Eastern and the Western Church. In fact, because of all he did, he is often called the Last Church Father. John was born in 675 AD, which makes him just about the same age as both Boniface and Bede. He was born in the city of Damascus, in modern-day Syria. This means he would not have contact with either Boniface or Bede, as they lived about 2,000 miles apart. And John was not just isolated geographically. He was also isolated because he was not born in a Christian kingdom. He was born under Muslim rule under the Umayyad Caliphate. This, however, was a very recent change. In fact, up till 660, that's 15 years before he was born, Egypt, Israel, Syria, and Turkey were all ruled by Christians. They were all under the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire. But in the 620s, 40 years earlier, the Byzantines had fought a very long and difficult war against the Persian Empire, And while the Byzantines ultimately won, the war was so disastrous that it severely crippled both sides for decades. So when this new threat from the south, the Muslims, came, neither the Byzantines or the Persians were prepared to face it. And so an Arab Muslim dynasty, known as the Umayyads, was able to quickly conquer huge amounts of land, including Spain, North Africa, Egypt, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, And at its peak, it was one of the largest empires in history. When the Umayyads first conquered these areas, the majority of the population was Christian. But at this time, the Umayyads were very tolerant of other faiths, specifically Jews and Christians. In fact, there was a special tax given to non-Muslims, so in some ways it was profitable for them to have large Christian populations. In addition, many of the administrative positions in cities continued to be held by Christians. The Umayyads decided, instead of replacing all these people who had plenty of experience, they would let them continue to do their jobs, but now for a new ruler. And there were many Christians who did not mind this at all. People were just like they are today, and there were plenty who were unhappy with the rule of the Byzantines. And they were excited to have new rulers, whatever the religion might be. Now all this happened just before John was born. But John's grandfather was one of those Christians in an administrative position when the Umayyads conquered. In fact, it's very likely he was involved in the surrender of the city of Damascus, probably making sure the city was well treated after that surrender. He was given the surname Manzur, and as far as we can tell, continued to serve faithfully as a city administrator to the new Umayyad conquerors. His son, and John's father, was named Sergius, and Sergius would also serve in public life as a tax collector for the Umayyads. This is the world that John was born into, His family was a prominent Christian family, but living in a world ruled by Muslims. John's father Sergius was, at least according to the legends about him, a pretty kind and considerate man. I say legend because the earliest biographies about John's life weren't written until about 200 or 300 years later, and most scholars don't think they're particularly accurate. Most of the more reliable things we know about John come from his own writings, or the writings of his opponents. But because most of what we have on John's early life comes from these legends, we're going to look at a couple of these stories. So according to this biography, John's father Sergius also adopted a boy named Cosmas, who would himself later become famous in his own way. Sergius cared greatly about his son's education and their virtue. He was especially concerned with giving his sons a good education in their faith. As the story goes, one day Sergius was walking through the marketplace when he saw a slave auction. In seeing the slaves, he noticed one of them looked European and was dressed like a monk. He inquired about the man and found out he was from Sicily and had been captured in a raid by the Muslims. He also noticed this man was weeping. Why, O man of God, do you weep? Is it because you have lost your earthly freedom, Sergius said? But your garb proclaims that long ago you renounced the world and died to it. "'I do not weep because I have lost my freedom,' answered the monk. "'I died to the world long ago, as you say, and care nothing for it. "'I know well that there is another life, one better than this, immortal and everlasting. "'I lament, because I shall depart this life childless, without an heir.'" John's father said in astonishment, "'If you are a monk, father, you have consecrated yourself to God, "'voicing to preserve your chastity. "'You are not permitted to beget children.' You should not grieve over this. The monk answered, You do not understand my words, sir. I do not speak of sons according to the flesh, or of a material inheritance, but of things spiritual. It is clear that I want nothing. Nevertheless, I possess a great wealth of knowledge, which I have labored hard for from my youth. With God's help, I have mastered every worldly science, including rhetoric, dialectic, the philosophy of Aristotle and Plato, and I have learned well the mysteries of orthodoxy and as expounded by the Greek and Roman theologians. And like a married man who has no son, I leave no spiritual heir to inherit the wealth of my knowledge. After hearing this, Sergius was very excited. Sergius had a good amount of influence among the Umayyad rulers, and he was able to buy this monk from the slavers. The monk's name was also Cosmos, the same name as John's adopted brother. So from now on, I'll call this teacher and monk, Cosmos the Elder. As opposed to John's brother, I'll call Cosmos the Younger. So, Sergius had Cosmos the Elder tutor his sons, which Cosmos the Elder was happy to do. Both sons, Cosmos the Younger and John, proved to be very good students. They learned mathematics, music, philosophy, theology, and rhetoric. And John's biography even claims, So proud was their understanding of geometry, they might well have been termed new Euclids. Well, I don't know about that, but from their later writings as adults, we know they really were both brilliant. After many years of teaching, Cosmos the Elder realized he had nothing left to teach these two brilliant boys, now young men. So one day he told Sergius that his time as their tutor was done, and asked if he could leave to continue to learn and teach at a nearby monastery. Sergius was sad to lose such a great teacher, but he was thankful for such a blessing. So he rewarded his friend handsomely and bid him farewell. Sergius continued to work for the Umayyad rulers, but eventually he died. And he had been such a good city official that the rulers asked John if he would continue in his father's footsteps. John obliged, and he spent his early life working in the Umayyad administration of Damascus. However, at this time the Muslim rulers were becoming less and less tolerant of Christians, especially in public office so John did not stay in his position long. Sometime before 715, John left public life and entered a monastery near Jerusalem called St. Sabbath. He would live the rest of his life there. In fact, the small room where John would do most of his writing still exists today. While John was not living under the rule of Christians, he and his fellow believers in the area still kept in contact with Christians living in the Byzantine lands, and all around the Mediterranean. Through this correspondence, John discovered a controversy was sweeping the Byzantine church. And it's a controversy that we talked a little bit about last week, the iconoclastic controversy. So I said before, this issue about icons was a pretty big deal. In 726 AD, the emperor of the Byzantines, a man named Leo III, outlawed the use of all icons. An icon is a religious picture or a religious symbol. This caused incredible tension in the church. The patriarch of Constantinople, that's the highest church position in the east, almost like the pope in the west, resigned over the issue, and mob fighting ensued and people were killed in the streets over the use of icons. Since the official policy of the state was now iconoclastic, that is, anti-icons, any writing that was for icons was smothered or jailed or threatened. But some pro-icon Christians were just out of their reach, and John of Damascus was just one of those Christians. John was all for the use of icons, and since he lived out of the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantines could do nothing to him. So John could write whatever he wanted on the subject without any fear of reprisal from the anti-icon emperor. John wrote against Leo, saying this, If an angel or a king preach a gospel to you other than that which you have received, close your ears. This is quoting Galatians 1 verse 8. For I still hesitate to say, as did the apostle, let him be anathema, as long as I see any possibility of repentance. It does not belong to kings to legislate the church. To kings belong the maintenance of civil order. But the administration of the church belongs to the shepherds and the teachers. John went on to give a defense of icons that was so good, one modern scholar states, that ever since John's arguments were made, they've been so complete and thorough, no one's ever needed to add to them. Needless to say, this did not make John very popular with Emperor Leo back in the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. So while John's full name was John Mansur with an S, Leo would call him John man with a Z which in Hebrew means bastard. Very clever, Leo. And Leo made it a ritual that he would publicly condemn John once a year. There's also a legend that Leo was so angry with John that he sent a letter to the caliph ruling over Damascus, claiming that John sent him a letter telling him all the weak points of the city walls of Damascus and asking Leo to invade. In the legend, the caliph summons John and then has John's hand cut off, But then John prays and his hand is miraculously reattached and healed, and his innocence is proved. While that is a little far-fetched, we do have one statement written about John from the Council of Iconoclasts, and it goes like this. Anathema to Manzer, that's John, the man of evil name and Saracen sediments. Anathema to Manzer, the worshipper of images and writer of falsehoods. Anathema to Manzer, the insulter of Christ. And traitor of the empire. But while some in the Byzantine Empire hated him, others loved him, and there were still many iconophiles back in Constantinople. And someday when the iconophiles would again gain power, John's writing would be highly honored, and he would be remembered as a hero of the faith. That would not be until after John's death, however. So during his life, it was very helpful that he was out of reach of Emperor Leo and the other iconoclasts. But this does not mean that John was only willing to write dangerous things when he knew he was safe. As we will see later, John was also not afraid to write against the beliefs of the Muslims. And while the Umayyads were for the most part tolerant, this general policy was changing in John's lifetime. One of John's contemporary bishops, named Peter, also of Damascus, had his tongue cut out for preaching against Muslim beliefs. John was not afraid to write what he believed in, be there danger or not. But John was not only writing great discourses about this iconoclastic controversy. He also wrote on many other topics, including the problem of evil, predestination, God's foreknowledge of the future, and the nature of the Trinity. And while writing on complex topics, he was most of the time easy to understand, writing in forms such as question and answers or dialogues. And besides writing, he was also working hard as a monk and priest. From his little monastery in St. Sabbas, he would regularly go out and preach at nearby churches. And by all accounts, he was an excellent preacher as well as a writer. He gained the nickname Chrysohoros, which in Greek means golden flowing, named after one of the small rivers in Damascus. There are several surviving copies of sermons from John, and a good portion of those are on one of John's favorite subjects. Mary, the mother of Jesus. These are also interesting because they show the contemporary beliefs about Mary. In fact, because of all his writing on Mary, John is sometimes known not only as a doctor of the church, but the doctor of Mary. We also have some existing sermons on the Transfiguration and Easter, and he even preached on some saints, like John Chrysostom and St. Barbara. And if I ever get a chance to do those saints, maybe I'll use some of John's work also. John's sermons were truly eloquent. In them, he states things like, He had no father on earth who had no mother in heaven. And he had a rare gift for making his speech both beautiful and theologically precise. And not only did he write sermons, but he also wrote liturgical poetry. One book called The Eight Tones, of which John is partially or entirely the author, goes through almost an entire year's worth of hymns and poems. His words are so powerful that some of John's hymns are still used in churches today. Two of those hymns are Day of Resurrection and Come, You Faithful, Raise the Strain. Both hymns are about Easter, and both are found in the hymnal that my church uses, the Lutheran Service Book. Here is one stanza from Come, You Faithful, Raise the Strain. For today among his own, Christ appeared bestowing. His deep peace, which evermore, passes human knowing. Neither could the gates of death nor the tomb's dark portal nor the watcher, nor the seal, hold him as a mortal. So as we're seeing, John was a busy man, both a churchman, a writer, a poet, and a scholar, of that there is no doubt. But his greatest writing of all is his great theological work, known today as the Fount of Knowledge. This vast work John dedicated to his old friend, and possibly adopted brother, Cosmos the Younger, Cosmos had also become a monk like John, and the two had been together at St. Sabbas for some time. But Cosmos left St. Sabas, and he became a bishop himself in the town of Mayuma, which is modern-day Gaza. He, too, had a very successful career, and is now known to history as Cosmos the Melodious, as he, too, was a great poet and composer. And the two remained close enough that John would dedicate his greatest work to Cosmos. John himself sets out the purpose of this massive book in his dedication. He says this, First of all, I shall set forth the best contributions of the philosophers of the Greeks, because whatever there is of good has been given to men from God above. Then next, after this, I shall set forth in order the absurdities of the heresies hated by God, and so that by recognizing the lie, we may more closely follow the truth. Then, with God's help and by his grace I shall expose the truth. However, as I have said, I shall add nothing of my own, but shall gather together into one those things which have been worked out by the most eminent teachers and make a compendium of them all. In this way, John wrote the first great Summa Theologica, which is a fancy way of saying a complete systematic work of theology. I mean, the name really shows the ambition of the project, He wanted to show where all knowledge comes from, and so doing that he touches on all sorts of subjects. The book is divided into six parts. First, there is an in-depth discussion of Greek philosophy. This part of the book shows a very deep understanding of Aristotle, which leads some people to believe this is how Arabs were first introduced to Aristotle's work. This is important because Aristotle would be lost to Western Europe for hundreds of years only to be rediscovered through contact with the Muslims in the 1200s, possibly originating all the way back to John of Damascus. The second part of the book is called Against Heresies. In this part of the book, John categorizes all the different types of heresies in the church, from the beginning of church history up till his present day. He lists 103 different heresies, but it seems that the first 100 come from other authors and sources. The last three, however, are John's own work. The last three focus on Muslims, Iconoclast, and the Iposkiste, and that took me a lot of takes to figure out how to say that, and I'm definitely not sure that's right. But it's interesting to note that John and the early Christians did not see Islam as a separate religion, but they saw it as a heresy of Christianity. For that reason, they're often called Mohammedans at this time, that is, followers of Mohammed. And this section also shows just how brave John is, because John pulls no punches against his Muslim rulers. Even though he realizes the danger, he writes what he believes. It also shows that John knew the Quran and Muslim writings very well, as he references them often and accurately. John is one of the first Christians ever to do this, so to add to his long list of titles, we could also add First Apologist of Christianity to Islam. For instance, at one point he states, We say that all prophets from Moses on down foretold the coming of Christ, and how Christ God was to come and be crucified and die and rise again, and how he was to be judge of the living and the dead. Then we say this to the Muslims, How is it that this prophet of yours did not come in the same way, with others bearing witness to him? And how is it that God did not in your presence present this man with a book to which you refer, even as he gave the law to Moses, with the people looking on the mountain smoking, so that you too might have certainty. They answer that God does as he pleases. And to this we say, we know, but we are asking how the book came down to your prophet. They reply that the book came down to him while he was asleep. Then we jokingly say to them, as long as he received the book in his sleep and did not actually sense the operation, then the popular adage applies to him, you're spinning me dreams. I guess that was funny back then. John keeps up the intensity, though, and he states why they don't ask more from Mohammed. Show us by witnesses that you are a prophet and that you come from God, and show us just what scriptures there are that testify about you. They are ashamed and remain silent. We continue, although you may not marry a wife without witnesses, or buy or acquire property, Although you neither receive an ass nor possess a beast of burden unwitnessed, and although you do possess both wives and property and asses and so on through witnesses, yet it is only your faith in your scripture that you hold unsubstantiated by witnesses. For he who handed this down to you has no warranty from any source, nor is there anyone known who tested him before he came. On the contrary, he received it while he was asleep." John also speaks on the different views of images and on the attitude towards women, and all these show that John was nothing if not bold, and that while his tongue could be golden flowing, he could also use that tongue very sharply. After cataloging and refuting the heresies, the next four parts of this epic book are John's attempt to cover all of theology, 100 chapters in all. In it, he covers the nature of the Trinity, the nature of Christ, creation, baptism, communion, faith, saints, resurrection, and a whole host of others. John stated that he wanted to add nothing of his own in this book. But this book is so much more than just a compilation. John's real skill was his ability to synthesize all these materials and all these ideas together into one massive book. John had a vast knowledge of philosophy and science and scripture and earlier Christian writers, and he brings them all together here. Because of this, because he was able to summarize so much of his predecessors and do it so well, many see John of Damascus as the end of the early church, and this book, The Fount of Knowledge, the monument of all the Christian thinkers who went before John. John only lived a few more years after writing The Fount of Knowledge. In 749 AD he died, in his little monastery of St. Sabbath, which he had been in for so long. To put that in perspective with our other church figures, he died 14 years after Bede and five years before Boniface. And like both of them, John would have great effect on generations to come. As we wrap up on John, it's hard to summarize everything that this man did. He was the perfect example of a Christian polymath, that is, someone who is well-versed in many different subjects. Not only was he an expert But he also had a great talent for taking lofty ideals and complex thoughts and making them understandable to the average person. Albert Einstein once said, the definition of genius is taking the complex and making it simple. According to that definition, John of Damascus was most certainly a genius. And because of his work, he changed the history of the entire church and the history of the whole world. So that's all I have on this episode for John of Damascus. But if you have questions or thoughts, please let me know. You can either send them to me at the Contact Me page at faithfulforebears.com or email me at clericclaussen at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts or your questions. Next week, we're going to look at two Christian brothers, which I've been really excited to do and I've been looking forward to for a while. And because they have so much about them, it might become a two-part episode but we'll see. My name's Eric Klossom, and thanks for listening to the show. Remember, if you like it, rate me on Stitcher or iTunes, and tell a friend. See you next time.